So, like, first of all, like, can you introduce yourself for the coaches in Taiwan? Well, first of all, thanks for the invitation, Eric. It's nice to talk to someone on the other side of the world. And uh, and uh, I, I look at looked at some of your your previous podcasts, and it's uh, you're doing a great job. So thanks a lot for 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 the opportunity. Appreciate it. Well, my my name is Hakan Andersson. Uh, I live in 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 the northern Scandinavia in Sweden, uh, not too far from the polar circle. And if you look out today. Now we're almost 20 below and it's uh, approaching uh, nine o'clock in the morning. It's still dark, you know, so it's uh, maybe not the best <laughs> best uh, situation in the world for, for developing sprinters, you know, but uh, we do our best. But, uh, well, I'm a, I'm a former athlete myself on a national level. I'm a train engineer, but I worked in the, in the fire brigade for 36 years. And retired as a senior officer five years ago, and now I'm only working with sports. And I've always been intrigued by sprinting. It's uh, first of all, it's very genetic and it's very difficult to develop. But uh, you know, everyone can develop with, with the right stimuli, with the, with the own with own boundaries, of course. And uh, I've been a sprint coach since uh, around 1985 on elite level since the early 90s. I've been in and out of the Swedish national team. I've um, been responsible for the National Federation Spring Program for, for many years. And I've been very fortunate to coach some, some great athletes and uh, perhaps more important, some really great human beings. And uh, I have former education from the Federation, but I always like reading. I always like interacting. Thing with with other coaches, both national and in, on international level, uh, but I've always been very open with my ideas. I think that's a it's a great way to, to to start a relationship with others, you know. But I also worked, you know, the, as a strength and conditioning coach, or maybe you should call it strength and speed coach in many other sports, you know. Uh, you know, very very elite swimmers, uh, some boxers, speed skating, soccer, ice hockey, you name it, uh, in a lot of sports and. At the moment, I, I work uh, uh, at a high, something called a high performance center in Växjö, uh, and where we are consulting about uh, thirty-two professional teams in various sports, uh, and also some, some individual athletes, mainly in track and field, mostly with advising coaches and lecturing uh, about sprinting and strength. Uh, I'm also responsible for the for the testing lab, and on top of that. Uh, I'm still doing some coaching. I presently have a, a promising uh, group of, of junior uh, sprinters, hurlers, and jumpers in, in my hometown. So, so that's a brief introduction about myself. So, quite a journey. Do you, like is there like any certain time that coaching is kind of bored for you? Well, I, I like to, to uh, you know, I'm a pretty curious person and there is so much unexplored uh, when it comes to athletics. You know, in many senses, I feel we're still in the dark ages, you know, there, there's so many things we don't know, you know. So I think it's uh, every day is a new adventure and just to, to, to be able to to work with with young athletes, you know, keep you, keep you young in heart. And I definitely have less years ahead than the past, you know, but I still truly enjoy working with sports. And if I didn't, I would have stopped long, long time ago. <laughs> cool, cool. 
So I'm going to jump into the questions, okay? Sure, yeah, yeah. So uh, you mentioned that you're sprint, you coached sprinting for a long time. So for like training athletes, like acceleration, is there like certain type, certain things you're going to be looking at? Well, if we if we angle it from a sprinter's view, you know, everyone knows that a sprinter accelerates with a very inclined body position. And we know that the ground contact times are, are long. And due to where you place your, your foot in relation to your center of gravity, you have very, very little braking forces, you know, coming out of the blocks. And that means that, uh, you know, you can produce, uh, uh, you know, great uh, horizontal force and there is an extreme acceleration initially. And we know that the elite sprinters, they leave the blocks, you know, uh, close to four meters per second. And But already at the second, second step, you know, the horizontal velocity exceeds six meters per second, which is 50% of the maximum velocity for most sprinters. So the acceleration is in enormous. And then... And that has a lot to do with it, with the, you know the how you orientate your, your force production and and the you know that you in, they have a very inclined body position. Uh, but we must also understand that you know, uh, you know if it take uh, Usain Bolt for an example, when he ran his world record, he accelerated for almost six to seven meters. And for a, maybe a elite football player, can you know you know accelerate maybe thirty meters. But you must understand that you know not two steps are identical when it comes to acceleration. You know, so it's very important if you take a about a brief things. It's very important with a neutral uh, pelvis, of course, and an ability to create the space between the foot uh, uh, in the air and the and, and the ground, so one can attack the ground from a, from a high uh, position rather than just dropping the foot to the ground. And we must look at, the, at where you plant the foot in relationship to center of mass. If you plant too far ahead of, of center of mass, you produce unwanted braking forces. And of course, the acceleration is going to be less. And we also have to look at the rotation of center of mass around the, around the foot from early to late stance. Too early extension of the hip and knee and, and, it will, and you will project forces too vertical and you get less, less acceleration as well. And it's, I think it's pretty, you know, it's been, you know, pretty popular to talk about, uh, you know, uh, shin angle and torso angle lately. And I think it, it makes a, a, lot of, a lot of sense, you know, uh, since, you know, these angles, you know, they, they show us briefly, you know, uh, the, you know, the direction one is pr producing the propulsion force at any, at any given time. And, at the early stance at the first foot contact, you know, these angles are almost identical and they're usually around 35 to 40 degrees for sprinters. But then you will see when you when accelerate that the shin angles, uh, you know, at, at earlier early stance rises gradually, you know, up to maybe the six to ten, the six to ten steps, you know, five, 15 to 20 meters. And the torso angles rises, uh, you know, a, a little longer, maybe 20, 30 meters, you know, 18 to 15 steps, that little bit dependent. Uh, both, uh, you know, hip, knee and calf muscles are prime movers in acceleration, but with a low shin angle, the knee extensors can effectively produce horizontal propulsive forces, which is very, very benef bene beneficial for, for, for acceleration initially. Uh. 
And uh, you know, the, the ankle, you know, too, has to be, be very rigid. They have to be able to transfer force onto the ground. But it perhaps it's better to talk about a stiff dynamic uh, elastic deformation because it's not complete stiff. You know, there is some elasticity involved. Though. But uh, if it's too, too weak, you know, you're going to collapse and you're going to put a lot of stress on your Achilles tendon. Uh, and it usually means that you're going to, you know, hit the ground in early acceleration with your heel and you're going to produce less uh, horizontal propulsion and more more vertical and you have to involve your your hip extensors more uh, you know maybe maybe a little bit too early oh so you mentioned that there's gonna be like uh you ha you you have to look at those like hip position and the shin angle the body angle so can we start and also the steps right at the acceleration phase so when it comes to like the first, let's say the first three steps, three steps or the first five steps, is there like certain, certain like distance you're going to be like, uh, letting your athlete to like, just place the foot on? Well, when the first of all, when it comes to acceleration and, uh, you know, track and field overall, you know, I feel that, uh, Technique, you know, mechanics are more important than great, uh, you know, great uh, physical capacity in the gym. You know, uh, it, it might be some correlation between the first step and and your your squatting, but on on the word uh, the correlation drops uh, <laughs> significantly because it's you know uh, every, everything is different, you know. And when you talk about acceleration, especially in terms of, of sprinting, a 100-meter sprint, I think you have to be patient, you know. You have to be patient. You have to realize you're not running 10 meters, you know. You're running 100 meters. And, and you, you don't want to overemphasize stride frequency, you know. Stride, stride frequencies, you m m must know, too, in sprinting is more or less constant, you know, after the second step. But there, there's a relationship between contact time and flight time that shifts. So if you if you hear you know a change of rhythm and acceleration, you, it sounds of hears it sounds like uh, you know actually that the you know frequency is increasing, but it's actually the contact time that is decreasing. And but uh, the say the frequency doesn't change too much. It must also understand you know that. Uh, that you know, triple extension, you know, coming out uh, of the only exists, you know, coming out of the blocks, you know, more, more you should more emphasize on 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 the fast scissor movement, you know, quick, you know, hip uh, flexion and extension, you know, that the scissor movement up and down. And we must also look at the you know sprinting from a three dimension dimensional perspective. Uh, we, we've got to look at the, if there is a rotation and of arms and legs, and if there is, try to figure out why there is. Some. And unlike you know upright sprinting, you know where, where the sprinters usually hit the ground uh, on the edge of, of, of the foot on the fifth meter sole, you know, and roll over to the big toe. In initial acceleration, if you look from behind, you know, the the feet are. Uh, usually much greater apart and and the ground contact come ground contact happens uh, actually on the big toe side of the foot if you're if you have a, a you know a good good mechanics so you can't roll on the 
on the fifth meters all outside. You can't be too bow-legged to sprint fast, you know, when it comes to acceleration in, in particular. How about, how about like stride length? You mentioned like stride frequency. How about like stride length? Well, when it comes comes to stride lengths, you know it 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 grows gradually, you know, uh, during the race. Uh, you know, from an upright position, you're you're more or less, you know, you're con you know you can divide the the stride lengths from you know contact length and flight lengths. You know, it's all, how far do you move your center of gravity in stance, and how far do you do you move your central gravity in flight, and the, and the some of those are actually the, you know the of the you know the the stride lengths, and it it builds up you know it's and on elite level you know it's definitely the higher correlation between you know stride length and and finishing time and stride frequency and finishing time you know we all know that uh, you know Usain Bolt uh, at his prime you know he covered hundred meter with less than forty two steps. But I think we're yet to see anyone that uh, runs under 10 seconds with more steps uh, than, you know, 48. Whereas you have a lot of, of, of sprinters running in the, you know, 1040, 1050 to 1060 range with, you know, 49, 50, even 51 steps, you know. Uh, so that's usually the, the, the limitation. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that's... The things we're gonna be, we we are gonna be looking at when we train like acceleration. How about things like you're gonna look at when you train like max velocity? Well, you know, when it comes to max velocity, you know, of course, we we subjectively look at you know rhythm and relaxation. You know, it's hard, very hard to measure, uh, but it's something that you know most sprinters like to communicate around. And I usually say, when it comes to sprinting, you have to dare to think ninety-eight percent. You know, if you if you try to push hundred percent the entire way, you usually usually you lose your rhythm and the relaxation. So, you know, relaxation is, is probably key. When it comes to you know to to maximum velocity, that only happens a, a very very few few step actually. If you you bolt. Uh, you know, hit uh, his maximum velocity at 67 meters, you know, or maybe he could maintain maximum velocity, maybe four or five, six steps, you know, after that, even him starts to decelerate, you know. But we look at, you got to look at, the, uh, you know, one's ability to, to create vertical forces. Uh, we like to see a hip, uh, a high hip position, and, the, uh, you know, a very acute chin angle of touchdown. It means that, uh, you know, the braking forces are, are more vertical orientated than than negative, you know. And uh, we we like to look at the thigh and heel position of the of the swing leg in relationship to the to the to the stand leg at mid stance. You want to see how, how well they're stepping over the knee with the free leg. Uh, you know, we look, look, like to look at you know the extension of the hip and knee and ankle joint at takeoff. Yeah, you know, too much extension usually usually means overstriding. Uh, not not very effective. It's better to start uh, a new new step, stride step, uh, rather than doing that last extension because it's very uh, you know it's a position where you can't produce a lot of force. So, and like I said, you know, you know, with modern technology now, you know, with EM, IMU sensors and contact grid and so on, you know, we can look at stride length, stride frequency, contact time, flight length, contact length, 
flight lengths and so on. And, and it's something that we've been starting to look at lately is, is an index between contact length and leg length. And we have found, and I communicated this with Ken Clark, I'm a, a smart American coach scientist, that uh, if you have an index of below uh, 0.95, you're orientating your, your forces to vertical. And uh, if you have an index over 1.1, usually means you're overstriding. So these are kind of some of the things we're looking, uh, looking at when it comes to, to maximum velocity. Cool. So kind of want to go back to like the acceleration phase. Uh, when I listened to the podcast you did with Joel Smith, you mentioned that when uh, acceler- like when track guys doing their acceleration, there's going to be three phases of acceleration. Can you like explain a little bit about that? Yeah, are you going to see, you know you're going to see at the big at the initial acceleration where it's a great uh, you know uh, uh, you know lean of the upper body, and the shin angle the ang- those angles are also you know you know very very you know very low. You can produce a lot of force also you know with your with your knee extensor so. The, the motor for acceleration is both the hip and the knee and the, and the, you know and the, and the, and the ankle joint but then you come to the point where you have a you know acute angle of the of the of the shin but you still have some lean lean uh, you know leaning of the torso means that part of the acceleration is putting a lot more stress and emphasis on the hip extensors you know, the glutes and the hamstrings are more important there. But then you come to an up, upright position about 30 meters uh, where, you know, you're still accelerating, but you can only do that by, you know, your, by, you know, minimizing your, your contact time, uh, you know, produce a, a greater impulse, you know, by, by creating, because the, the, the forces are much more vertical orientated than the, initial acceleration. So those are the, how I look at the, the three phases for acceleration up to maximum velocity. So is there like a certain like range of dis- distance that goes in the first phase of acceleration, second phase and the third phase? Well, it, it's very much dependent on the athlete, you know. Some athletes are very hip dominated. Uh, so they, are, you know, you know, you can take a, an athlete like you know Justin Gatlin and so on that uh, maybe place their foot a little further out in relationship to the center of gravity and use their hip extends a super strong glutes and hamstring to accelerate. Uh, then you have you know maybe a soccer player, football players that uh, accelerate from an upright position. So he also has to use his hip extensors more for 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 acceleration because he's accelerating from a standing position. So he can't get into those, that very favorable position for 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 horizontal propulsion and, and using the hip ex, uh, you know uh, you know knee extensors for for horizontal force production because of the you know nature nature of of, of that game. So it all depends on on the type of athlete and what kind of sports you're involved in, I guess. Cool. So while while we're still talking about like acceleration, I noticed that you combine a lot of like resistance sprinting in your training. So yeah, but, uh, yeah, but resistance sprinting. You know, if you talk about 
specificity. You know, I think it's almost impossible to be event specific at the gym because everyone, everything is totally different. You know, uh, you can be muscle specific in the gym. You can work the, you know, the muscles you think you're, uh, you think is uh, is uh, essential for for your event. But when it comes to the gym, it's very very difficult to be event specific. But resisted sprinting or hill sprinting is probably one of the few methods that resembles uh, the, the you know the the normal normal sprinting. And I see you know resisted sprinting is a is a technical uh, tool you know because if if you resist an athlete maybe down to you know fifty percent of his maximum velocity. Uh, his body position is going to be uh, uh, the same uh, as the first step in sprinting, but from a, from a longer, long, longer, longer, longer way. So if you resist a person, you know, with resistance, you have that body incline, you have that shin, shin angle that resembles the first step, but you can do, you can then you can, you know, train uh, the first step for more steps in one go. So and that's that's how, how I see it. And also like uh, contrast training, uh, I like to do some you know maybe resisted sprinting you know to get them into the right position, get some potentiation you know for a, for an unloaded sprint, uh, and maybe also you know combined you know resisted uh, yeah, normal sprinting with assisted acceleration you know those three combinations and with. Modern technology today, you know, with the DynaSpeed and or the 1080 Sprint, you know, that, that are similar, and we can do this these things, uh, you know, very effectively. You know, we've been using, you know, di different devices since the since the 90s, you know, and they work fine. You know, we build, you know, machines for both resistance and assistance, but now we can get, uh, you know, cinematic data instantly and you know, see what you know, you know, how things are going on on with a, you know. Yeah. on a on a you know better better scale you know so you know things are things are really really happening now in sprinting with with the help of modern technology i feel that's great so uh when you mentioned that uh you're probably gonna use like uh 50 percent of velocity decrement how uh how like in terms of weight how like how heavy is that going to be well if it, if it, that is only one snapshot because we use many different loads uh you know I, I just took that as an example you know if you if you if you assist a person with maybe 30% of the body weight in with these machines uh will slow them down to approximately 50 but with these machines if you translate that to maybe sleds uh, so so you, then you have to double it on, with, with, a, with a sled. Cool, cool. So I don't believe much in the concept of training at uh, at maximum power because we all know, you know, that in if you talk about horizontal forces that that you know we are measuring with these kind of machines, you know that the you know the maximum force are produced, you know, at the first step, and maximum powers occurs within. You know, maybe half a second. So I, I, you know, maximum power occurs within within half a second. I, I don't believe, you know, that it, you know, you know, working at that load that corresponds to to maximum power is going to help you through the whole 
whole acceleration might be beneficial for part of the acceleration, but but not not the whole. Um, uh, that's a concept I I, I haven't uh, jumped out on, uh, at least. Okay, so uh, I'm I'm gonna talk about the post you you post like yesterday about like plyometric and when you learn plyometric, your teacher said they should be probably do doing like strength training like twice their body weight. So. What what are your thoughts on like plyometric and like max strength? Well, yeah, no, that's a very complex uh, issue. You know that um, you know we you know when it comes to training, we have to overload in in some way. You know, and and we know that vertical forces are very very important in sprinting. That uh, you know the vertical f- forces for the for the for the best exceeds five times body weight, and that that is from a from a very stiff position. You know, you don't when the, when the best land, they don't the amortization phase is very short. They don't sink. Uh, they sink just a couple of, of, of millimeters. You know, so stiffness is very important, and the, you know it's a very stiff uh, stretch shorting cycle. I think j- jumping is very effective. You know, it uh, is very neural. It probably targets your fast motor units. Uh, it definitely uh, develops that shortening. Uh, you know, it doesn't. You don't gain muscle mass. Uh, you know, it, de- it definitely de- develops uh, many qualities that that are beneficial for sprinting. You know, but one must remember it's very taxing. You know, and it's not the only only you know training that matters. You know if. If jumping ability was was the most important for sprinting, then you know jumpers would be the best sprinters, and they're not. Huh? And if strength would be the most important, uh, you know, maximum strength would be the most important thing for sprinting. You know, the the weightlifters and powerlifters would would be the best. Or if you know flexibility would would be the most important, then the gymnast or the ballet dancer would be the fastest sprinters. But it's it's a combination of all, you know, uh, you know, but. Uh, I think uh, plyometrics is great, uh, but uh, I think it should start at a very early age. Uh, it's I think it can be dangerous to start. You know, a heavy athletes are twenty five years old; they've never done any jumping, and you put them to a plyometric regime. Uh, you know, where the landing forces, you know, are way exceeding what they ever been exposed to before. You know. And uh, you know, you know, I, I don't know where this idea comes from. That you shouldn't start plyometrics un- until you can do, you know, two you can squat two times your body weight. No one seems to to know where it comes from, but everyone heard it, you know. But when it comes to when it comes to, you know, two times body weight, you know, in, in the gym, I mean, that is mainly, you know, your your your, you know, it's you know, your concentric ability, you know, in a slow contraction is super different from 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 jumping or sprinting, you know. So I don't think you're going to be, you know, you know, very safe, you know, by by you know doing a lot of weightlifting before, you know, you know, starting your plyometric regime. But uh, I think you have to take it gradually, you know. I think you should start jumping at a very, uh, you know, early age uh, to learn the technique and, you know, build the resilience, you know, build the elasticity, you know, uh, of, of non-contracted elements. So 
I think it's very potent, uh, but it can also be very, very dangerous if you're not doing it in, in the right way, you know. Just as heavy weightlifting is, it's also very, very potent, you know. It's very easy to gain muscle mass, that sometimes unwanted when it comes to many other events in, in athletics, including sprinting. So it's a very complex, complex issue. So uh, is there like certain number if you're going to train like a uh, sprinter, is there like certain like numbers of body weight or certain number you're going to let them like, like here's the, here's the way I, I, I want you to like be squatting. Past this way, you probably let just probably let's just do like squatting once a month or that kind of stuff. Is there like certain number of that? Well, well, I, I think I see as you know when it comes to squatting and all this, it's more general qualities that every can benefit from. I think everyone should do resistance training, you know. And as a youngster, you know, there is definitely you know you're going to transfer from from developing you know your muscle mass and maximum strength to sprinting, you know. But it's a very diminishing return, and uh, and you can't say there is a certain number, you know. But you know there are you know very slender, elastic uh, type of, of sprinters, even on the on world class that can that barely squats. They're still very very fast. But then there are the more you know muscular, maybe bulldog-looking guys that uh, thrive on heavy resistance. So I think it depends what kind of athlete you are, you know. And those really, you know, heavy muscular guys, maybe they don't uh, they feel comfortable with, with jumping, especially if they haven't done it at an, at an early age. Uh, versus those slender, elastic guys, you know, they, they usually love it, you know, and, and they respond very well from it. So everyone is different, you know, and uh, I don't think there is any training regime that fits everyone, you know. You have to, to see what kind of... Of of athlete uh, you 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 are having in front of you, and you know where he is uh, in terms of his uh, uh, career, you know his training background, you know his uh, events and so on. You know it's uh, you have to try to to analyze, you know the the athlete you're working with and see what uh, we're going to benefit the most from. And then you know we, it's always this discussion: Are you going to emphasize uh, your weakness or your strength? And I think when you're a young athlete, you know, I mean, you can, I think you can work a lot of, of, of your weaknesses as well. But once you get more and more elite, it usually pays off a lot better to to further develop your 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 strength, your best best qualities. You know, so uh, as always, there's a lot of depends <laughs> when coaches answer questions. Yeah. So since we we're talking about like resistance resistant training. I saw that on your like Instagram or Twitter, there's like you put your athlete on some kind of device, like some kind of rack, and you kind of like mimic the the acceleration steps. And there's another video, like kind of, is that like kind of mimic the the way that the hamstring do when it comes to max max velocity for those kind of video. Uh, like, uh, what are these training? Well, I, I understand. It. I, I I understand that people get confused. You know, um, like I said before, I don't think you can be event specific in the gym, uh, regardless if it looks like 
a sprinting stride or not, you know, because everything is so different. The type of muscle contractions are different. The force production time is different. Everything is different. Uh, but one thing I, 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 you know, I think is important in sprinting, you know, is the hip extension. So, you know, these machines, I, I, you know, I put on, on the, my Instagram account, you know, there's a machine we built already in 1993 that allows, you know, uh, uh, you know, unilateral hip extensions. Uh, you can, you know, in the last couple of years, it's become, you know, popular to do hip thrust. But I think personal hip thrust is the most in, in uncomfortable exercise on earth to put 200 kilos on your on your on on on, on your hip and do ex, hip extensions. So I like this a lot more and I also think that it's, uh, it can be beneficial to work you know, unilaterally when it comes to, to certain exercises especially when it comes to developing the hip muscles so, so those those kind of machines has been around for a long time I got inspired by a, a mentor of mine Jan Melian that came up with the idea and at the beginning I didn't have the, the money to, to buy the machine from him so I I welded my, one machine myself in 1993, and so you see two different machines that are uh, almost identical, but they they they, they are a little, little different. You know, the the one machine I built myself means you can go into a lower position and get more full range of movement when it comes to the hip extensions, versus Jan's and Jan's machine is a little bit more more uh, you know sh- shorter shorter. Uh, uh, you know, shorter, uh, you know, muscle contractions in terms of of length and uh, change of, of, of central mass. But uh, in the in the gym, you know, also I don't think the, the the muscles don't really care if you're upside down, lying on the side or up, you know, wherever you are. You know, it it only feels the you know the you know the the resistance, so you can build strength. And then you build the, you know, the specific strength on 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 the track, and uh, plyometrics may be something in between. But you know, the change of contact uh, times are waning. You know, when it comes to horizontal ju- ju- jumping, the the contact uh, lengths are, are you know are, are long. Uh, and it talks about vertical jumping because of the na- the nature can do you know bilateral jumping you know they can produce force with both legs you can you know produce maybe uh, you know you know force in a little bit shorter time but on the other hand you don't move your central gravity you know as long as you do in sprinting so in sprinting you change your central gravity maybe one meter in the in the you know in the stance phase and you're not going to do that in 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 most uh, vertical yeah jumps yeah yeah that's good so i'm going to jump in the next topic which i want, kind of want to ask is like uh how would you program like like uh like the weekly layout for like sprinters yeah, I think almost all year round, you know, of, of course we have a period where we do some more general work. You know, if you have a, of a, a maybe, you know, competition period of three or four months in a long year, most physical qualities are, are rather low, except maybe 
sprinting ability. So we do some general work, you know, for, for a period, maybe four or five weeks. Uh, we try to be outside as much as possible and do, do less intensity training and start to build up, you know. Uh, but it, it, it doesn't mean it, you know, it's, it mustn't be too long, you know, because uh, then you're doing, you know, general training for what, you know. So you, I think you have to be, if I compare to what we're doing now than when I was sprinting myself in the early 80s, you know, our general preparation phases are usually much, uh, much shorter. Now we do more specific work. And so a typical microcycle will probably involve one, one session where you emphasize acceleration. Uh, one session when you emphasize more upright running, you know, more short, uh, you know, more, you know, maximum velocity sprinting. And one one session where you where you emphasize uh, speed endurance. So. And uh, if you're going for indoor, you know, you, you heavily uh, emphasize uh, acceleration, of course, because 60 meters is more or less only acceleration. And you gradually... Uh, develop more and more, uh, you know, uh, you know, maximum velocity. The, the closer to the outdoor season you get, and uh, of course, sixty meter indoors, uh, uh, you know, you know, uh, it's not no no speed endurance at all. But we still do endurance work, you know, because I feel you need that. Uh, very easy to to reach a speed plateau if you're only doing short sprints. So I like to do the. A little longer runs too, you know, for relaxation, you know, for, on, on other reasons as well, you know. So I think, you know, when in terms of sprinting, maximum velocity, we go from a, you know, classical, you know, you know, short to long approach when it comes to to the endurance side. Maybe you can talk about it going from from long to short, you know, and sometimes in the spring they meet each other. So for those sessions like uh, acceleration session, like. Uh... Upright running and speed endurance. Is it like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday? Well, it depends on the period. You know, if you're close to the competition uh, period when you're running, all those runs are probably going to be high intensity. I feel that seven days is uh, too dense. So if you talk about, you know, you know, more general uh, periods, uh, you, you can fit in those sessions within seven days. But when you start to prepare for the competition session we usually use micros you know periods are maybe nine or ten days to get more air in between the sessions and more more rest and so you can run with, with higher qualities so so how you usually do it yeah so then how do you put like since it's let's say in the general preparation you put like three those three three sessions in a, in a week or in seven days and more towards to like the track meet or the competition you're going to be uh micro cycle these kind of sessions, three sessions in like nine or ten days right so and uh, besides the sprinting how do you put in the weight training in uh when it's GPP and gradually toward the competition. We usually use, uh, you know, two, two strength training sessions a week. And we usually combine them with, you know, jumping or, you know, 
you know other type of explosive work and and usually you know do one day of sprinting you do one day of you know strength training and then one day of recuperation and so you re- repeat it like that and uh, in the general preparation you know the the highest highest intensity sprinting you do in the work is probably ac- the acceleration so the start start the microcycle with that and maybe you have the you know you know the you know the you know the you know the 60 or 80 meter repetitive runs you know in in the middle you end up with a with a speed endurance but when you come to closer to the to the comp- you know competition period maybe you start with the maximum velocity training and you you have the acceleration in in the middle or or at the end depending dependent on if you're par- preparing for outdoor or indoors and closer to competition period, you usually mix qualities too. So one one session can be both, uh, you know, acceleration, maximum velocity, and speed endurance. So, and the same thing with during the competition period too. You know, they tend to be much more mixed. And maybe too, you can end up a sprint session with with uh, uh, with with lifting. So you have a kind of a dual session, dual day. You know, with both sprinting and lifting uh, jumping in one day to get more more rest and recuperation in so it depends on on depending on your on your competition schedule i guess yeah so i, I know there's some chat coaches that are going to put like uh sprinting and heavy lifting on the same day and you also mentioned this but you also talk about like uh, divide into like two sprinting and heavy lifting in two days. So, in what kind of situation you're gonna put in, like put like sprinting and heavy lifting the same day, and in what kind of situation you're gonna put in like uh sprinting and you're gonna divide it into two days. Oh well, usually when you want more rest, you want to have more complete rest. Uh, usually in the competition period or just before the competition period. I like to do a dual session because then the, you know, strength training is very much uh, not developing anymore. It's just that you want to maintain. So it needs very, very little. So as you know, strength and jumping session can maybe be only 10 or 15 minutes. So you just round up, round up the sprint session with, with, with some resistance work. Cool. So uh, uh, you also mentioned that when you divide into like two days, there's probably you're probably gonna combine jumping with heavy lifting. So is that for like for like uh athletes? Is that is that probably going to be too much of a plyo, too much of a like ground contact? Well, we usually, you know, I usually I like to sandwich <laughs> uh, the resistance training. I just I like to start the session with jumping horizontal jumping most of the time and i feel the athletes are usually more ready to lift heavy and then you end up uh, you know with uh, with some more vertical jumping after you know to regain some of the elasticity you lost during the lifting uh, you know part of it but we our lifting uh, is not uh, we do lift heavy some athletes at least do lift heavy but uh, there is not a lot of reps so. And it's not a lot of exercises. And I do like, you know, the Olympic lifting, you know, for most athletes. But it's the same thing there. If the if their technique is good or not, uh, depends on what, what they've been exposed to as a youngster. 
Oi. Sorry. So a little bit dependent on what they've been exposed to when, when they when they when they grow up, if they're good lifting technique or not. Cool. So last question before I let you go, okay? So I know uh when sprinting there's probably be gonna be a lot of like uh hamstring injury when we train our athlete to sprint. So how exactly do you like minimize our the chance for our athletes to get like Sprain in their hamstring. Well, it's a million dollar question. <laughs> if I knew the answer to that, I would be a rich man on YouTube. <laughs> it seems like you know the hamstring has surpassed you know ACL injuries in the in the Premier League, and it's costing billions a year <laughs> in the football <laughs> federation. But I think in my sport, I, I think we have less hamstring they, they do occur still but we have less hamstring injuries now than i was a sprinter myself and i think the main difference is that uh, you know today we do more high intensity running all year round so the hamstrings are uh, you know always exposed to to those kind of of of, of uh, work uh, so it's not a surprise when it comes to may when you start suddenly start to, to sprint maximum so i think it has to do with you know some part of his preparation uh you also do more uh, specific uh, you know strength training for the hamstring than we we did in the in the 80s and the 70s then you know we only did uh, more or less uh, hamstring curls it's maybe not a good idea to only do that uh, i think uh Technique is also important. You know, when you, you know, we talk about you know hip position, if you have the lower doses or not, it's gonna put uh, put st stress on your or, or, or on your your know, hamstrings. So there's many, many, like I said, there's many, many uh, different uh, reasons why why uh, you know it it happens. You know, but um, uh, I think it's less of a problem now than it was at least when I. I was a sprinter, you know, 40 years ago. So you said that uh, when you're sprinting, there's a lot more hamstring injury than it is now. And you mentioned that it is probably because that they do a lot of like uh, high, intensity, high intensity sprinting all year round, like now. So does that mean that you think that we should probably like expose our athlete to a little bit like microdose dose this this kind of element into the training all year round? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think that is a problem in soccer and football too, because they are so scared of hamstring injury that they don't dare to expose the players to longer, uh, fast uh, sprints in training. So the first time they're going to ex be exposed to it is the end of a half in a in, in a game. So th that's where they get hurt, you know. In a uh, you know end of, of the halves when they're tired, uh, techniques uh, deteriorate, and uh, you know the, the you know if they try to sprint fast with a fatigue muscle, you know, and you never you haven't been exposed to it before, you know, it's um, it's a great hazard, I think. Yeah. Cool. So that's probably all the question I have for today, okay? So if there's like any coaches are interested in what we are talking about today, where can they reach out to you? 
Uh, well, I have an account on on Instagram and and uh, and on 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 Twitter. You know that I sometimes put put up some some ideas. I think it's a good way of getting criticized and <laughs> to see, to think about what you're doing and so on. It's uh, I and I enjoy that. Cool. So, uh, like, what what is 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 it all Hakan Anderson? No, it's Sprint Coach uh, S W E uh, on 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 Twitter, and it's yes, yeah, Sprint Coach on on Instagram. Cool, appreciate it, appreciate it.